Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Murph, you will be delighted to hear I'm going to turn the tables on Ken here. Excellent. Uh, what are you talking about? You know how he likes to throw out a tricky question to the two of us to catch us on the hop early on, watch us flounder about the place, mm. desperately grasp for the correct answer? Well, I'm I'm actually really good guessing what he's on about, but uh, I know that you struggle. Oh, no, I know I know that. Ken, in 1985, the Irish rugby team beat England at End Road to seal the Triple Crown and Five Nations Championship. Yeah. What song do you think the players were belting out on the team bus on the way back to the Shelburne Hotel? The sash my father wore. What? <laughs> Everyone knows that. <laughs> Doesn't everyone know that? That's like uh, fact A about the Irish rugby team. Uh, own. The sash my father wore. It was old and it was beautiful, something like that. Don't know. Um, da, 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 up to our knees in feeling blood, whatever the words are. Uh, yeah, I remember Don Lennon talking about that before. Um, I, don't, I don't think those. I don't think those lyrics are in that song. Either. Uh, it's something along those Take lines. I, I actually don't know the words. Uh, but yeah, it, it was. I think it was. It was sort of a, a demonstration of the uh, uh, Northmen, Southmen, comrades, all ethos of the uh, Irish rugby. Indeed, day. and it also provides the backdrop. Well done, Ken. You've really uh, put me in the seat of my pants there. <laughs> it, you it, really have, Ken. Yeah. It also pops up in Donald Lennon's book, My Life in Rugby, to allow him to sort of yeah, well, to illustrate a little bit about the relationship between the set, those sets of players, and also provide the context for what happened. A few years later, 1987, Rugby World Cup, when a not very high quality recording of the Rose of Tralee ended up being played in place of an, our national anthem. Uh, apparently the Ulster lads were okay with Aaron Naveen, but the team's management weren't okay with it. There was protocol to be observed. There was a compromise made. It wasn't a good compromise. No. And I think Donald to this day, well maybe not to this day, but certainly for a long time afterwards, got a lot of flack for because he was a captain and he was the one trying to drive uh, the playing of Aaron Naveen, which turned out to... They might have been better off playing nothing, I think. Is, nah, is, they, they could have gone with, wasn't Don't Go by the Hothouse Flowers bigger and then? That would have been Yeah, good. but Kent did, yeah. Did anyone Something have a hard by, copy? Uh, prefab Sprout. Yeah. You had to have access. You, you couldn't just get on Spotify, Ken, and download that, you know? Ah, they would Available got, offline or anything like that. For even the, in New Zealand, they would have had, they would have been able to find Don't Go. It was a big hit that year on. I don't even know if it was that year on, to be 
perfectly honest. Though. I always love Donald's analysis on TV and radio, and I'm greatly looking forward to having him in studio uh, today. Speaking of books. Yeah, that is the sound of A, a werewolf getting beaten over the head with drumsticks, and B, it's uh, to signify big news, Ken. Our second captain of the sports annual, volume two, has hit the online bookshelves, featuring big interviews of Richard Dunn, Michael Conlon, and others. The Fairview in print form at long last. At long, long the last. The Fairview in print form is one of the funniest things I've ever read. Uh, well. I'm just putting it out there. I'm sorry, Ken. I know you don't like me blowing. I'm 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 more I'm more of the Seamus Common than Conor McGregor school when it comes to hype. I know, but on on this occasion, you know, it is it does actually happen to be true that the Fairview platform is very very funny indeed. Ken Early, the Marseille years part two. Oh, there's so much in there. It's available poems, now. Also in print. I didn't want to. I didn't want to push people away from buying this annual so early. Remember, <laughs> so I was going to leave the Owens poems no, mentioned no, until the poems, that works some, too. some later plug. It's available now to pre-order at secondcaptains.com. Some key facts. Maybe give me another sound effect there, Simon. These are, this is big news. The key facts. <laughs> Poor werewolf. That was just the same one again. That's fine. I mean, when you, why mess with perfection again? Fair enough. Worldwide postage. Uh, free postage, I should say, first of all, anywhere in Ireland the UK. That's free postage and packaging anywhere in the Ireland and, uh, in, Ireland, in the Ireland and the UK. Yeah. Outside those areas worldwide, the postage and packaging rates we're applying is mostly around the five euro marks, which is a lot, che- lot cheaper than last year. There's a limited edition being printed. So if you want to be sure to get one, act now would be my advice. And hell, we've even made a tug at the heartstrings video to promote the thing. You may not cry when you watch this video, but if you don't, I accuse you. there's an excellent chance. I know, yeah, I accuse you of having a heart of stone, to be honest, if you don't cry. Did you cry? You did, didn't you? I cry a lot. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I kind of, I was a well up a little bit. I, I, I generally stop myself, stop short of, you know, bawling, crying, but I'd have moist eyes a lot when... You're just a crying big baby. When I see anything emotional. And certainly this video did it for me. It's just Ali, Bowie. I, I'm giving yeah. too much away here. Oh, I'm, I've crossed the line into giving too much away. Well, I think Mar- Mark wrote something on Twitter like 85% of the people who have seen this so far have cried. So I think I must have been the 15 or maybe the seven and seven and a half and someone else mm. didn't. Uh, but it did, it did give me a happy feeling. It made me feel, oh, that's really nice. Mm. But I didn't cry. Okay, well... Heart stone. Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know why you're making such a big song and dance about it, Ken. Yeah, I don't know. You know cry, don't cry, that's fine. <laughs> Just, you know. I might go down and write a blog post about this, actually. <laughs> Mark O'Shea on the show today, Murph. Yes. After retiring from announcing his retirement yesterday. one of the He's uh, retired from announcing his retirement. Yeah. He's back. He's back, yeah. <laughs> no, we've just heard news just saying he's re-retired. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because um, obviously it ends a spell going all the way back, I think, to 1993, where uh, an O'Shea brother of some colour has been in uh, the Kerry uh, senior squad. Um, and I, I picked up Tomas O'Shea's book that he released, was it last year, maybe the year before? Uh, and he said something that he said something that has been said quite a bit about Mark in the last twenty four hours, which is that he is the most talented of the O'Shea brothers, and it's it seems pretty counterintuitive for the cornerback. I mean, it, the cornerback of legend is, you know, a Bobby O'Malley type, you know, like a destroyer, a cold hearted assassin who basically takes down the other team's best player uh, and doesn't really mind how he goes about doing it, so. The fact that Marco Shea is, I'm not going to say universally recognised as the most skillful or the most purely talented of the O'Shea brothers, because I mean, I, to be honest, you can create an argument for all three of them. But there's no, like, he was smaller, obviously much smaller than Dara, smaller than Tomas. Uh, and yet, would 
he's probably the most accurate of the O'Shea brothers, for instance, in front of goal. <laughs> you know, and for for you to be able to say that about a quarterback is pretty is pretty strange. Um, and the idea that, that the fact that you can still have that idea of him as him being one of the great stylists of the game mm. for the last 15 years, even playing at cornerback, and even as he did for, you know, probably 10 years in the middle there, picking up the opposition's best forward. That was his job. Uh, and for him to still have that reputation as, you know, a footballer in the purest sense, even despite ha- having to take on that role for that uh, long a number of years, marks the guy out as a bit of a freak, to be honest, in how we look at players who play in certain positions in Gaelic football. Well, we will talk to that freak a little bit later on on today's podcast. We're joining the studio right now, I'm glad to say, by Donald Lennon to chat about his new book, My Life in Rugby. Donald, great to have you in. Yeah, great to be here, Ron. Thank Ho- you. Hope you're keeping well. I must say the first thing I've got to say is I was born in 1980, so my earliest r- rugby memories were kind of late 80s. Reading your book, I really feel cheated that I missed out on a bit of a, a bit of a glory age in the early days of your Irish career. Yeah, it was an amazing start for me, really. I came into the Irish side uh, as a young 22-year-old. I was just 22 in the second row with a, a grizzled Irish pack. I mean, all the other seven forwards had played and won the series against Australia in 1979. Um, they were expected to kick on in 1980, um, but they didn't. They met an England side who won the Grand Slam that year. Uh, various injuries that side hadn't come together since then. Ali Campbell had been out for about a year as well. So, um, you know, I came into that Irish side. You had a back row of John O'Driscoll, Willie Duggan, Fergus Slattery. Moss Keane was in the second row with me. I mean, he was a colossus. And, uh, you know, that, that front row fillar, Kieran Fitzgerald, came in for captain. And uh, Ginger McLaughlin. So uh, it was an incredible experience. Um the disaster really was we, we, we had four weeks off between winning the Triple Crown and going to France uh, and they were a French side that had played poorly in the championship and uh, we blew a grand slam. But I mean, in the, it shows you where Irish sport were at the time that a Triple Crown was almost weighted yeah. far heavier than a grand slam. So maybe a shorter break might have done you oh, some Oh, I think there. if we had played France two weeks later. It was in the old Five Nations, you see, one team had a four-week break because obviously you had you'd only five teams in it. Yeah. And we had that four weeks between winning the Triple Crown and the Championship. We had the Championship won regardless of what was going to happen um, and going to France. And, uh, you know, I think there was a little too much celebration maybe in the weeks in between. Your description of the French approach to that game caught my eye, actually, is the match in 82. The French players were coming out of their dressing room with blood streaming out of their noses. They'd been beating the shit out of each other before they came out and they were completely over the top on the pitch. Since then, there have been allegations of amphetamine used by the French in the 1980s. On the base of what I experienced, I wouldn't be surprised. Sounds pretty insane. Yeah, well, look, I, I think I played France 10 times, five in Paris, five in Dublin. Uh, the games in Paris were always different and they did have this sort of mad stare, this insane look. Um, and like certainly the first three times I played against France, they were just uh, physical encounters at a different level. Uh, I remember Maskeen, who you know was playing with me that day, he had recounted his first game against France, he was in the Parc de France as well, and uh, you know he, he, he somebody stood in his head. I mean, he just stood that went three inches into the side of his face. So I mean, this was something that you came to expect. I mean, when you see what you get a yellow cards for it these days, uh, I think when the likes of Sky would cover a match, they have 14 or 15 cameras. I think there was only about three or four in those days. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they were... Wait, is it not intimidating? Is it not, are you not a little bit... Of, I mean, you, you're a big man. You could take care of yourself, I'm sure. But is it not a little bit scary going to that environment? Yeah, it's well, I suppose it's something that you, you expect. I mean, you know, I think I, I mentioned the 80, uh, 84 game there because of the history we had 82 
when, you know, I mean, Ali Campbell, I remember Mick Malloy, the Irish team doctor. Uh, Ali Campbell was the central figure of that Irish team in 82. And he was so badly uh, ripped apart, like his back in terms of stud marks. I remember Mick Malloy taking a photograph of his back, which was just covered. I mean, he was like a fella got 40 lashes or something. <laughs> um, so we played them in 83 in Dublin. And I have to say there was a bit of rep- we We won the game, but we also won the fight. 84. We, were exp- we had a team meeting on the Friday night and, you know, I always think if we burst out the door and played them on the Friday evening, we might have won by 20 points. Uh, and the, the the following afternoon, we were waiting for the fight and uh, the French started running the ball everywhere. We were about 15 <laughs> points down before we realised that, geez, they haven't come, they've come to play and it was too late. But uh, that's the way it was. 85 and Dublin was a draw, a 15-all draw. Um, and again, that was another kick fest that we lost. I remember Brian Spillane got his, his lip burst, Philip Matthews, uh, his shoulder broken. We ended up having to play a prop in the back row. There was a massive fight down at the corner. I remember um, uh, Legiske uh, kicked some fella and there was huge brawl and Blanco was next to me and I'd know Serge Blanco. I didn't know him as well at that time. We played together subsequently for Barbarians. We'd actually toured together. But I saw him falling on the ground like a soccer fella feigning injury. And I just remember going over, grabbing him by the short, lifting him up. But uh, that's the way the games were. That's all you did? You just lifted him up? Yeah, well, I mean, there wasn't referees or there wasn't uh, TMO interventions, (laughs) but um, that's the way it was. Something we talked to you about just for a short while on the TV show last year before the quarterfinal against Argentina was what happened in 1987 with the, uh, the anthem before the first game against Wales in the inaugural World Cup. And I was, I was quite interested to read your recollections of that incident in the book because it sounds like almost 30 years later, I mean, you, put, you go into quite a bit of detail on it, there's still a lot you wanted to get off your chest about it. Yeah, well, I'd read so much about it since uh, the 20th anniversary of, of um, like Ireland's call was as, as a direct result of what happened in Wellington that day. Um, but there was so much misinformation about what actually happened that I just felt, look, we needed to preserve this. Uh, and, you know, I was directly responsible for it. I was captain of the team. We were the last game in the first round of pool games in the first World Cup ever. You see, the whole issue with the anthem, there was an understanding with the unions when you played in the Five Nations. When England came or when Wales came to Dublin, Oran Avim was played, there was no Welsh national anthem. When Ireland went to Wales, there was a Welsh anthem and no Irish anthem. They were an agreement between the individual unions. Mm. But then, like the World Cup elevated rugby to a different stage and you had like your teams like Italy, Tonga, Canada, and they're standing there in those opening games and they're grasping the, the chest, as you see all the time now. <laughs> uh, and we're kind of looking at this and this was festering in my mind all the time because we're the last. So we're a week in Wellington before that opening game and I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, are we having our anthem and uh, what's happening? And, you know, you know, as I say in the book, I, I basically go to Sid Miller, who was the manager, and he says, no, it's the same protocol. I spoke to a lot of the, the northern-based Irish players. They had no issue with playing around the vein. They were fine with that. They, they yeah. never had any problem no, with that. No problem with that. Um, but the, the, pro- the, the, the protocol had been laid down um, where we wouldn't have anything at all. And then, uh, look, it was a meeting that went on for hours and hours. And there was this stupid compromise that came out. Well, look, we have to play something. Phil R, who's um, you know involved in the RFU now, he had a James Last concert in Tralee. I always remember, and the Rose of Tralee was on it. 
we didn't even listen to the tape. So, uh, I mean, this is 20, you know, the day or two days before the match. I mean, it was a disaster. The thing that stuck in my mind, you must remember, New New Zealand is a long way away now, but in those days it was the end of the world. Like, people who went there weren't coming back. You hadn't your Twitter, your email. Uh, My abiding memory of the whole thing was going to an Irish social club after the game where they'd put on this function for the Irish team. They had all their kids, you know, dressed up in their Irish dancing uniforms. And But to, uh, like, the, the reaction, they were so disappointed about, A, that the Rosa Tralee was played, B, that Oran Levine wasn't played. I'm not sure what the reaction would have been for them, let's say, if we had nothing. It was just, yeah, if it had been the original yeah, situation. Yeah, but it highlighted the fact that something had to be done. It wasn't played, regardless of what people say, it was only played in that one game. Hmm. It was scrapped after the opening game. Um, but it set, you see, when the World Cup came around in 91, we played three over four games in Dublin. So it wasn't an issue. So because of that, when they went to South Africa in 95 for the World Cup, they knew they couldn't allow this thing to happen again. So that's when Ireland's call was penned. So this is just a cassette that Phil Orr happened to have yeah. with him. And that's, that's what was played. You hadn't heard the first... You, and it, were all the players even aware of, that this was going on in the background? Uh, well, my you recollection, my, I, like some of them have said they knew nothing about it. Um, but it's amazing how the passage of time sort of... Uh, <laughs> that solves some know, people. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was funny. I saw a, a nationwide programme on RT and it was all about because of the 1916 and all of that. And it was about the emblems and anthems. And they actually had the Rosa Trilly. It was the first time I've seen it. And I just happened to be sitting on the coach and I'm looking, where's the remote control? I must where's press record. So actually I now have the Rosa Trilly being played in Wellington that day. Right, and a particularly yeah. dodgy recording, was it? Oh, just, it yeah, was terrible. It, it was great. terrible. I mean, it wasn't great even on your own CD player at home or CD tape. There was no CDs in those days. But um, but look, it was a means to an end. I mean, people have their own views on Ireland's call. Yeah, and you obviously... What's your view on Ireland's call before we leave that? Uh, I don't particularly like it, but I understand. Uh, I have an issue now because Ireland's call was brought in for when Ireland was played away from home. You respect home jurisdiction with our own Navian in Dublin. Ireland's call has now snuck into the calendar. We, we, we play both of them now when you're in Lansdowne Road, hmm. whereas we only have one when you go away. So if you're following the protocol, you should have our own Navian in Dublin. And uh, like, I just think for a, an Irish player playing abroad, he's never stood for our own Navian. Um, so if you have two in Dublin, why not have two when you go away? So just take us back to the reaction to that, that incident, that being played when you got back to Ireland. You describe it as a shitstorm in your book. And there's a particularly telling story of, well, you, I don't want to uh, steal your thunder on this one, uh, a GA supporter, a Cork hurling supporter, who takes a bit of umbrage with you that summer. Yeah, I mean, look, I've following Cork hurling and football all my life. I'm from a GA background, and I love the summer when your rugby is over. You now become a fan. You can have a a point before the match, which um, uh, you know, and uh, like Cork hurling was at its height at that stage. The '87 Munster final, Cork and Tip, classic game in Thurles. I mean, I remember sitting in Thurles that day, just having come back from New Zealand, and mm. You know, thinking, I mean, if, if if rugby was our national game and we could play in places like this with New Zealand there, uh, which could happen now in 2020, yeah. which is incredible, really. But that's that's for another day, maybe. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was a fantastic game. I remember Nicky English kicked the ball, uh, got a goal with a couple of minutes left that drew a classic game. Uh, we were coming back. We stopped in Mitchellstone for a point on the way home, as you do, discussing the match. And, uh, 
you know, I'm in the bar and I could sort of sense a bit of rumbling on the other side of the bar. And the uh, next thing, there was one or two fellas start shouting at me. And I, I didn't quite capture what they were saying. But then it kind of filtered through, like, you know, why won't you sing the, ro- sing the Rose of Tralee? Why won't you sing the Rose of Tralee now? And of course... As in all these things, when there's drink involved, it was getting a little bit out of hand. Yeah. Uh, I was lucky. Uh, uh, Dr. Con Murphy is a good friend of mine who's been involved in Cork GA since the mid-70s. He was with me that night. And uh, Teddy McCarthy, the great jewel player, was, was on the other side of the bar. And the two of them got together and diffused a situation uh, which could have got out of hand. Mm. Um, but I remember Con, he recognised one of the fellas who was a bit antagonistic and... Um, you know, uh, you know, as I say in the book, twenty years later, I get I, I, I this guy rings me to apologise uh, for his behaviour that day. Out of the blue, out of the blue, uh, I I met him. He he gave me his name, and I he said, "Look, this name won't mean anything to you." And I said, "Well, it does actually." I said, "I know exactly who you are," which right. I think kind of caught him a little bit off base. Yeah. <laughs> now he did claim that he tried to ring me in my office a few times in the intervening years, but uh, he just never. It got through, but we met. We discussed the whole thing. He actually wrote me a letter. Um, look, he was he was a staunch GA man, and he said he had been influenced by incidents that had happened in the north um, around that time in '86. Um, but it was amazing to close the book on the whole issue, sort of twenty years later. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, there's a quote of yours in the book: "Some in the GA community like to paint themselves as being more Irish than the rest of us." How is it, Joe Barry President, tr- at real gales? And it's certainly the case where rugby players are concerned. It, it sounds like something that's grated on you, pro- probably because, as you say, you, you're from a, a GA background. Really, your dad's a carryman, yeah. you played yeah. GA, and you just sort of happened to go to a rugby school and took it up. Well, from that, there. like I went to a secondary school that played rugby. If you like, that sent me in a different direction. Um, but it used to drive me bananas, like. I think that that's gone now, but it used to drive me bananas playing for Ireland in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I'd go into to GA Stadium all over the world and you'd always have some fellow shouting at you, you're in the wrong place, you're at the wrong game. And, uh, you know, but like, it was as if because we played rugby that we, you know, and we played with those fellas from the north, we really weren't as Irish as the rest of them, which... Would you would you put it up to those guys who said that? Or I guess you can't really, as a captain of Ireland, or whatever. You don't want to be getting an argument. Well, you don't. With these I mean, fellas. look. I suppose we were lucky in those when I think some of the things that happened off the field. I have huge sympathy for the modern player with your Twitter and yeah. camera phones and all of that. Um, but look, it's no different. I mean, you were still a well-known figure. I mean, you you have to control yourself when you're getting abused in in, in public. Um, but it was something that, as I said, we had loads of fellas that I played with Ireland. Uh, who you know the, the um, how you couldn't call them Irish was just yeah. a bit of a joke. But um, no, I mean I think all those days are gone. Rugby now, look, you can say there was a little bit of a, there was elitism in rugby in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, in that most of the players came from rugby playing schools. I think those days are long gone. You look, I think the Heineken Cup has played a huge role. The Munster journey in 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 the. 99, 2000, 2006 uh, has just opened up rugby to a totally different audience um, everywhere you drive around the country now you'll find a rugby club so those days are gone um, but it was something that used to stick in my craw that you know we'd go over and play in London and uh, somebody would think you know because the tricolour wasn't travelling that we were less Irish than them and you know again I think I mentioned in the book when we beat England in 1982 uh, going into the the bar in 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 
uh, in Twickenham under the stand. Moss Keen brought me in, and of course, Moss was like a magnet. Everybody came around. But I'll never forget this man. He had a suit on, he had a cap on, and he just came up to me and said, Look, you don't know what winning here means. Uh, I have to go into work on Monday morning. He was obviously back again another. Uh, there was a depressed times in Ireland. He was working away from home. So those people made you feel that, you know, yeah, I mean, look, we're as Irish as the rest of them. You played in the 1991 World Cup, uh, the the game against Australia at Lansdowne Road. You went to pretty extreme lengths, though, just to make it into that squad, didn't you? Yeah, well, I I, uh, I had a disc out of my neck. Um, uh, Kieran Fitzgerald had come in as captain, the pre- or as coach, sorry, the previous season. And uh, he had appointed me the first time ever that Ireland appointed a captain for the season. Uh, but I damaged my neck. I knew I was in trouble. We played Argentina in the November and I knew there was something wrong. Uh, there was a squad pick to go to Namibia uh, that I wasn't on. But uh, I, I, I got a call. Brian Rigney, uh, Mick Galway and Neil Francis were the three seconders who travelled. Uh, Rigney was injured in the first test. And um, so next thing I'm... I'm uh, in Cork, I think the tall ships were in the bay at the time, and I hear on the again, there is no mobile phones. I hear on the radio driving home that the Irish management are frantically trying to contact me. <laughs> so, jeez, uh, uh, better get in touch. So we I rang, drove home anyway. So uh, uh, Ralph Murphy, Lord Reston, was the secretary of the Munster Rugby setup at the time. He said they want you in Namibia. So, I mean, I, 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 I describe it in the book. I went on a journey. Like from Cork to London, London, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Johannesburg, Johannesburg, Windhoek. And I then get into this two-seater Cessna plane <laughs> to fly into the desert in a, a godforsaken place called Keepman Shoop. <laughs> I'll never forget where Ireland are playing. Yeah. And um, of course, I knew what was coming. I'd been around long enough and to, to know that I would, Fitzy would want me to play on the, uh, that Tuesday. So I was prepared for this, and in he comes, and uh, could I have a word? And yeah, I said, uh, uh, he said, will you be okay to train? I said, of course I will. <laughs> he said, will you be able to play tomorrow? Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I think I describe in the book, we're in the desert. It's about 30-something degrees, and uh, we're playing the game on the Tuesday night. And then they come, the, the, the management are cribbing about the quality of the floodlights. And I, what, what, Jesus, what's wrong with the floodlights? They're perfect. No, we, they shifted the kickoff to three o'clock in the afternoon. Oh. So like this was complete and utter disaster. You got we, through it. I, we won the game. I played well and got into the second test. Poor old Gollum. Mick Galway tells the story how, because Neil Francis and Brian Rigney started that first game against Namibia. Gollum was on the bench and all they, they, they came into Gollum looking for my phone number when Rigney got injured so Gollum said oh jeez I don't have his number at all <laughs> so then when I arrive I play with Gollum on the Tuesday and then I get picked to play in the match on the Saturday so um, but that opened the door for me to get back to the World Cup I think we've all been faced with that question by a coach over the years even at the lowest levels are you, are you sure you're okay to I'm play you yeah, seem, it looks like you may have been out last night no 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 no. the, the question the answer is always yes a little I'm bit of a bug but I'm fine I should be okay yeah. to play Munster are starting their European campaign this weekend on Sunday against Racing Metro the sense I get from how you speak uh, about them in the book is that you're quite downbeat about the sort of medium term future yeah I think it's very difficult um I think, look, we were blessed in that period in 2000. You had so many quality players. Uh, like To have a team that had a David Wallace, a Ronan O'Gara, a Paul O'Connell all coming at the same time. Uh, Keith Wood was there for a certain period in that. Look, we, we don't have that quality of players in the setup at the moment. 
Uh, I think it's difficult. Like we all know that the, the challenges that face the four provinces in terms of finances, uh, competing with the French and the English clubs. Uh, the fact that Thoman Park is now sitting empty most of the time is a huge problem. I think Leinster are best positioned to remain in one of the the key players in the European market because they're in a capital city with 1.2 million people. The RDS is going to be redeveloped. They should have 25,000 all-seater. Um, and even as an overseas player like Dublin, it's a European city. It's They've no problem coming to live in Dublin. Mm, it's um, an easy sell. Sort of it's an easy yeah. sell, exactly. No, uh, I understand fully uh, Munster, like the one centre, there's been a lot of controversy about that. They had to do it. There was no question about that. It was farcical, going up and down the road to Limerick, Cork, Limerick. We still don't have a proper motorway there. Um, the amount of time that was wasted was ridiculous. I think it could have been handled better. I think, is there an anti-feeling in Cork? Yes, there is. I mean, I get it all the time. I can't go, there isn't a week goes by that somebody doesn't stop me in the street saying I've stopped supporting Munster Rugby. Really? In yeah. Cork? And I say, why? And they well, look, uh, it's all, it, it, you know, the whole focus is Limerick. Yeah, so the stadium's in Limerick. The, the stadium is in Limerick, Limerick. The centre is Limerick. The games are in Limerick. There's four Pro 12 games a year in Cork. You get Zebra. You get uh, Cardiff. You get the Dragons. I think we get a token. The Ospreys are, are, are mm-hmm. Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, people are... are and I, it, it is a worry. All along, there was a... You know, there was a... a a concern that the scheduling, and, and let's be fair, television were dictating seven o'clock matches on a Friday, one o'clock on a Sunday. They're not really conducive to get people to travel. But the real worry that I had is when Munster played Edinburgh a couple of weeks ago in the Pro 12, three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and like there was certainly a crowd of less than seven or 8,000 there. That is a worry going forward. So people particularly aren't travelling from Cork anymore? No, they're not. Yeah. And I, well, I don't know, they're travelling from Waterford or Tipperary. I, I'm not, all I know is that when I drive home, in the old days when I was driving home, the traffic going back to Cork was to take you hours. No, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a concern. I think Munster were always bigger than the sum of their parts. The whole fans and the Red Army played their role. The fact that Thoman Park was such an intimidating place to play added to the, the fear factor around Munster. Now, I don't think the opposition teams worry about coming here anymore. Is, is there any solution to any of this, though, at this point? Um, I think I've been very impressed with what, what Razi Erasmus has done so far. He's looking at a three-year programme. Uh, I think we need... There is a lot of very good young players there, but I think that the whole model uh, that's in Irish rugby at the moment, uh, it doesn't... like it, it works well in Leinster in that you have... You've so many top quality schools producing so many quality players year after year. We don't have that in Munster. No, you might ask the question, why? Why is there only two schools in Cork? When I was playing rugby in Cork all those years ago, you had Christians and Prez. There's no, there's been no real improvement. Bandon is a B school. Middleton is a B school. You've no major improvement on that. And that is why the emphasis on Munster needs to be more on the club scene. Yeah. The, the, the players need to play for their clubs in the All-Ireland League. The Munster players learned about what playing for a badge, what identity was all about when they were part of clubs. I keep saying to the younger players coming into the Munster setup. Join a club. I don't care who you are. Align yourself with a club. Because when it's... A, you get a feel of the history and the tradition of rugby in Cork or in, in Munster. And B, when it's all over, you have somewhere to hang your hat. Um, I, I feel very strongly about that. Um, there is a passion still there for club rugby, but I'm worried when 
I looked at the All Ireland League tables there a couple of weeks ago. Carcon were bottom of one A. You had Shannon, um, Dolphin, and UCC at the bottom of one B. Brough were on the bottom of two A or two B, whatever. There was a monster club at the bottom of every single division. Now there's other reasons for that. There's jobs, immigration, young kids there. You know they go to Dublin for a job. There's challenges there, but all of that is playing into the difficulties that Munster are facing at the moment. There's no quick solution, but I think uh, I like Erasmus. I like the way he's going about his business, but it's going to. It's not good. There's no short-term fix for where Munster are in the short term. Any chance uh, of a away victory to kick things off? I can't see it. No. I mean, I don't see Munster getting out of their pool in the Champions Cup. Difficult one away. I think even James Cronin now being suspended. As a minimum, when you go away, you have to have a bench. You have to have two front rows. Munster are compromised there now already. Um, it's going to be difficult. I mean, you've Glasgow. If they could get anything out of, out of Paris, it would be great. But you've Glasgow coming the following. Glasgow certainly will. No inhibitions going to Thoman Park. They do it every year in the, the Pro 12. So it's going to be difficult. OK, well, we'll leave it. Slightly downbeat note to leave it on, Donald, but it's been, <laughs> it's been a great chat. So listen, Donald Lennon, My Life in Rugby. Great to have you in. Thanks a million. Thanks, Don. Flame hair, flame hair, flame hair, truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Aaron. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Brilliant stuff there from Donald, not surprisingly. I think yeah, we're all very familiar with Donald Lennon over the years. He's and big fans. One of the, Always and ever, yeah. One of the um, smarter people to talk about uh, his sport. Knocking around the place. Uh, interesting that he sees the clubs as part, as part of the solution in Munster. Maybe he mentioned how poorly some of the clubs are doing right now because there is a story from the book when the AIL first started, the All-Ireland League, uh, the the rambunctious spirit of the Munster clubs appeared to come as something of a shock to the more gentrified folk who followed the Leinster team. So there's a story of the opening weekend of the AIL, the first time ever that these matches were taking place in, in the league setting. Gary Owen came up to Wanderers, stormed the Lansdowne Road Citadel Murph. Uh, came up, stuffed them, and then started celebrating wildly in that little, that lovely little bar that he used to have in the corner there. Yeah. So they went in there anyway, and the the fans were all celebrating wildly. A drink, a, a man spilled a drink over a Leinster lady who was sitting there in a fur coat, and she said, apparently she was furious, and she roars, "Gary Owen, you're an absolute disgrace." <laughs> Uh, so the Gary Owen faithful <laughs> turned around, apologised and said, look, man, where we come from, we're the snobs. So be, beware what's coming. <laughs> so a bit of the genesis of the Leinster, Leinster Munster uh, rivalry to come there. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast, I think, is definitely out now, yes. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you done? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, but it's not safe to now. Down to Anfield, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you showing man? Well, then we talked about uh, Daryl Horgan um, with Emma Malone, who was in talking to us in the studio. Um, he obviously played brilliantly on Tuesday night, scored two goals. As Dundalk beat Cork, and Martin O'Neill was at the game, and I imagine was told by. 
Mm. Certainly a number in the three digits, possibly even four digits, personally face-to-face. You've got to pick this guy. You've got to pick this guy for Ireland. So we talked a little bit about that and uh, a lot of other stuff as well. One of the great inter-county careers came to an end this week. Mark O'Shea has won five All-Irelands, three All-Stars, the Footballer of the Year award with Kerry. He's played in as many championship games as any other footballer in the history of the game, along with his brother, Tomás. Mark, uh, great to have you on the programme. Congratulations on, on an incredible career. How have the last sort of 24 hours been for you? I, I assume plenty of good wishes coming your way? Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's great to get the good wishes. Um, quietly chuffed, you know, with, with everyone being so so nice. And, um, you know, it's it's obviously it's the end of an era, but, uh, you know, there's a lot to live for now. Life is only starting now, really, you know, but uh, it'll, it'll be a huge change. Yeah, uh, Twitter, I, I presume, is kind of weird for uh, for guys such as yourself, and this is a ver- uh, only a very recent occurrence in a lot of ways. But uh, something like Twitter gives you know opponents or uh, previous teammates or whatever, or, or people from different sports altogether, a chance to communicate directly with you and tell you very very nice things about your career and uh, how you've comported yourself over the last fifteen years. That must be that must be really really nice. Oh, it's lovely. You know, I mean. I suppose uh, pitting against uh, the likes of Bernard Brogue and all who I played against for years and it's nice to see him acknowledge me and you know Bernard's you know on and off the field an absolute gentleman you know and uh, then you have your own players and the likes of the Henry Shefflins and all of that you know as I say I'm quietly chuffed it's, it's great to be uh, acknowledged and recognised by your peers and these fellas have done it all you know so it's it's um, it's it's great you know and it, it, it's very respectful of them as well you know it's just, it's it's, um, I suppose, the end of an era for me, you know, but um, it makes it that much easier when fellas are kind of, you know, giving you a nice uh, pat on the back as, as, as you walk out. Your old teammate, Mike Quirk, who we talked on the podcast, says Mark O'Shea was Picasso trapped as a house painter. Cornerbacks were never supposed to be so talented. What a career. <laughs> what, do you make, what do you make of that analysis? Yeah, geez, I, I don't know. No, no one, nobody has ever um, described me as somebody like Picasso, to be honest with you. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it as yeah. a. Um, I'll, I'll take. I'll take that whole nice. You know, I'll be. I'll be. I'll be quietly happy with that one as well. But, yeah, uh, it's a funny one because yeah, no, it, it is part of the, the. It's part of the strain, I, I guess, of the of the analysis of your career that you. I mean, you, you could have played anywhere, really. You, the talent to play anywhere. You played as a in the full back line mostly. Were you? Were you always? Comfortable and happy enough to do that, or were parts of your, was there a part of you always aching like a lot of people are to to get a little bit further forward? Well, you'd be aching at times, you know. It was like what I used to do is obviously I, I cornerback was my position, fullback at times, cornerback most of the time, but um, there were times where you'd love to get more involved in the game, you know. And and, and what I used to, you know, especially if you were getting a kind of a, if you were being challenged by your opponent, I used maybe bring them a bit of a bit of a canter down the field to the other end of the field, see how they like the town there. <laughs> but uh, it was nice to get forward. But I always felt when you did get forward that it was important to, to get back. And I suppose down throughout the years, I have tra- I always trained hard. I make, made sure that I was in good shape. And, you know, if if I was making those runs down the field, I, I was doing them with the knowledge that I knew I was able to get back the other end. But yeah. to be, to, you know, to be um, described like that, Picasso, obviously... It's it's a great compliment, you know, and um, you know. But at the same time, I've had I've had games where I have been out in the half back line. You know, there's I think 2009. I spent a lot of my time out there in the league, and it was lovely. It was it was really great. And uh, you know, you see the, the way the game has gone now, and the sweeper role that would be in a role that, that I would have loved. You know, so it's um, 
it's it's you know the game is changing so much now as well you know that uh, positions mean very little you see the Dublin team you see the likes of Johnny Cooper Philly McMahon Keith Higgins from Mayo all these fellas are bombing on now because they know that there's going to be some fella uh, in their position and that they they, they they go then full full tilt in the knowledge that they there's some guy there uh, marking their men you know yeah it's weird because uh, you know <clears throat> you won football of the year from from cornerback at a time maybe when Certainly, football was changing, but I mean, you were still, it was still very much a one on one sort of collision, or m- much more so then than it is now, at least, with, you know, the the idea that when you were playing a cornerback that you were isolated in there with one other guy. That's not really the case as it is now. Did you see that, that role, the cornerback role, changing completely from when you started to, to finishing up now? Um, I did see the cornerback role change in other counties but not so much in our own county up until maybe the last year or two, because up until then, we certainly did play kind of a, a 15 v 15 style approach. Certainly we kind of, we, we, um, we did, uh, you know, focus in on, on mass defending as well, but we were very much, you know, all those years now that I played, it was definitely, look, you're marking your man and, and do that job and there's nobody else going to be helping you out. And that's the way we did it. And I suppose, you know, he, myself and Tomas always made the point that we used to look at the Donegal fellas and the way that they used to have this, um, you know, the way they used to defend in masses. And, you know, we, we said, geez, wouldn't, we, wouldn't, we, wouldn't it be great if we had that? <laughs> but uh, look, everyone lines out differently. And that's, that's the fascinating thing about the GA. There's different tactics used by different coaches. And, you know, it's, 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 um, it's, being revo- it's revolutionized all the time and it's, it's constantly evolving. You know, you look at... Uh, you look at, say, when Kerry put Kieran Donaghy in full forward in 2006. Kirk came along in 07 and they had Michael Cusson in full forward. Sean Cavanaugh was there in 08 for Tyrone. So, you know, the big man was going in full forward. Then you see the likes of Donegal in 2012 and the the, the, the mass defence and, the you know, the ultra-defence tactic. And then you see other teams replicating that. So, as I say, it's evolving the whole time. Dublin are there now. And they've uh, the goalkeeper Stephen Cluxton, and he's he's uh, he's been such a huge influence on the game in the last few years, and especially for Dublin, you know, he's you know he's p- partly the reason Dublin are so successful. And I think you're going to have other other teams trying to replicate that, although you'll find it difficult to to replicate Stephen Cluxton. Uh, Mark, do you think Kerry? You mentioned there how it's only been in the last couple of years that that a lot of people have accepted that things have to be looked at differently. How do how defenders? Uh, you know the definition of positions and so on. Do you think that maybe the county has been a little bit, a little bit slow to embrace that? That that's left them uh, behind tactically at all in the last few years. That that that, um, that, that, that essentially you've, you're, you're kind of having to play catch up on that side of things with other, with other counties. When for a long time, obviously, the footballing ability was enough to get you through. Yes. Yeah. I I understand. Yeah. Well. You know, there's. I think the one thing that that Eamon certainly uh, has used as a tactic down through the years is that he's he's um, you know horses for courses with Eamon. You know, I suppose different tactics for different teams, and that's something that we possibly used in 2014, where we you know playing Mayo and then you change tack for for uh, Donegal. So yeah, look, I, I suppose it's something that Kerry were slow to buy into for a while, but. You know, we we were doing it back in zero in 2014. Definitely, I mean, we whilst we didn't have a sweeper, we certainly played a defensive game where 
we left our half-backs back and, 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 you know, they weren't bombing on so that you had that defensive cover. But um, we possibly didn't do the, the sweeper role or the, the ultra-defensive tactic to the same level as other teams. And possibly, possibly it might have come against us. But, you know, when you're winning, it's, it seems, it, I think public perception is out there that, you know, whoever wins, I, I saw I saw during the week there where Dublin have 23 people in their backroom team and all of a sudden everyone seems to think that this is what you need now to, to, to win in All-Ireland. You know, everyone, everyone is different and just because, you know, you win in All-Ireland doesn't mean that that's, this is the way you have to do things. You know, things are going to evolve in a few years and somebody's going to come along and do something else and everyone who thinks that's, that, that's what you have to do now to, to win. So, look, bottom line, you have to have the players and you have to have the pedigree. And, you know, Dublin have it at the moment. We, we're we getting there, I think. We're three, three years in a row now. We've won the minors. So I think this, the, the, the future is bright and carry. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, it was time for me to step aside. I think there's Eamon brought, you look at the 2014 team that won the all Ireland minor, I think 10 of those guys were involved in our senior senior uh, uh, panel last year. That's huge and that's going to um that's going to, that's going to multiply now in the in the year in front of us, you know. So there's no doubt um that the the the, the future is bright for Kerry and I think it's time to step aside and give those fellas their, their opportunity. Speaking of pedigree, you had the O'Shea name. I was going to say the pressure of of carrying the O'Shea name into your intercounty career. I, I I think you have said in the past that maybe there was a pressure there at the start. Is that something that became quite easy to deal with over the years? Or was it always in the back of your mind that you had the two older boys that you had to live up to and and party and all the rest? Yeah. Well, look, if pressure is something that I kind of put on myself anyway, I always. I always uh, wanted to put pressure on myself to perform. and I used to get very uptight and nervous before games. And, you know, after a while, I understood that that was a good thing too because it was a sign that I was tuned in, that I was focused. Because sometimes you go into a game and you mightn't be tuned in or you mightn't be focused and you're not, you're not uptight, you're not nervous. So, so that was a, an indicator to me that I was ready for the game, you know. But definitely pressure was something that I put on myself. It's not necessarily something my family put on me or my uncle party put on me. He certainly... Uh, he mentioned once, all right, that, you know, back in the day when I was a minor, he was saying that, uh, you know, your uncle Tom won an All-Ireland minor. I played three years Kerry minor. Your brother Fergal was captain of the Kerry minors. <laughs> Dara played Kerry minor. Your brother Tomas was two years a Kerry minor. There's plenty of pressure on you now, but you have to play Kerry minor, you know. So from that point of view, I think that was more of a kind of a, him just having a bit of a laugh. But, you know, obviously I, I put, fierce pressure on myself to perform and that was the big thing and I think that's important you know I, I even think now say when I'd be playing with my club I'd still be putting that pressure on myself to excel and you know the day that you don't put pressure on yourself you know is the day maybe you, you're full wanting the, uh, the O'Shea brothers have pretty much taken over the, the GA media world uh, between Tomás and Dara's uh, TV work and punditry work. I mean, is there a, a punditry role left for you, do you think? Or will you have to go into management or something distasteful like that? Jeez, I don't know, Les. You'll, you'll, have, to, you'll have to answer that one because I, I don't know anything about this punditry role or what, what's going on at all. Um, it's, it's, look, I'm keeping my options open. Uh, it's something that would interest me, but at the same time, coaching is something that would interest me. And I was asked that question last night and it's, not trying to give a, a cute or a clever answer here. I I will just have to wait and see what's what what what's being offered. You know, I am training my school team here, Tralee CBS the Green, and we're playing in the Carnival now in a few weeks, and I enjoy that. I enjoy training lads. Um, 
it's something I get a thrill out of. But I've also done the other side of it with the Sunday game, and that's something I've enjoyed. So, you know, you, I, I, I'll, I'll take it step by step now, and I'll see what's what's being offered or what's what's coming down the tracks. You know, so it's um, you know, I, I I'm definitely going to stay involved in some shape or capacity. I'm not just going to walk into the step into the wilderness. You know, just football. Football was my life, and. Uh, Playing football was my life, and now, now there's a big void there, so I have a big void to fill. So look, we'll we'll see what where it takes me. We'll see. Brilliant. Listen, Mark, congratulations on a, an absolutely exceptional career. Thanks a million for talking to us. No problem. Thanks, Louis. Bye bye. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Murphy, of course, faced a similar issue to Mark during your career, carrying the great Murphy name through the hallowed fields of Galway Club Football. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say, Owen, the pressure wasn't quite as intense, mm. given that neither of my three older brothers actually played any senior football from that time. But I will say this, that as the youngest of four brothers, and I see this in Mark, I think, uh, there's a certain element of being a lot more chilled out as a result of... You know, you're not really going to go picking fights with brothers who are, you know, seven and eight years older than you, you know. So I think that, and I was, uh, again, as I was looking through Tomas O'Shea's book, I did see that Mark was a lot smaller than all of his brothers. And that continued up until he was about like 15 or 16. I think they, used to, yeah, I think they used to use him as a goalkeeper quite a lot and just yeah. bang shots at him, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, like the competitive fire burned in a slightly different way. You know, Tomas would have been banging off of Dara. You know, there would have been physical exchanges there. Mark was too small. So he stepped away from that. And as a result, maybe didn't pick up quite so many yellow and red cards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 2. Quick reminder, is available for pre-sale now at secondcaptains.com. The video's on there to have a look. The, there's plenty of info as to what to expect in the annual this year. A lot referring. of people crying. A lot uh, of people crying, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah a lot. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks a million, Ken. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, so. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.